Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio, where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my incredible guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights to take your life and your business to the next level. Ranked in the top 2% globally, this podcast really is a must-listen, and again, it's because of my guests. So let's dive in. My guest today, and I'm really excited about this this conversation is Allison Arnoff. She is living an unboxed life. And we're going to talk about that. I mean, when she contacted me or her team contacted me, I said, what is an unboxed life? I was instantly intrigued. So basically, almost dying usually has the effect of epiphanies and radical life transformations, but Allison's didn't. And I'm going to ask her to share that story. Again, fascinating. Surviving surgical complications, she woke up after six days in suspended animation and with three more hospital stays in her future, which is when she really started rebuilding her life. But her epiphany was that she was already living life right, unboxed, and on her own terms, a life free from expectations, limitations, and blind spots. And she definitely was not living in the boxes or within the boundaries that others tried to impose on her. And I'll get her to talk about her career in tech work, but mostly I want her to share who she is and why she's doing the work she does. And I'll ask questions. She's going to be doing an awful lot of sharing here. She's got a lot to share and I'm going to pop in and go, Ooh, ooh, I've got a question. Pick me, pick me. Allison, welcome to your partner in success radio. I'm so thrilled to have you join us today. And honestly, I can't wait to hear your valuable insights and experiences as a near-death survivor, which caused you to double down on your mission to support as many people as you could with the gift of another chance that you were given. So welcome. Well, good morning, and thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to be here and to share this hour with you. Well, we had a terrific pre-interview, and I was scribbling down notes going, oh, my I don't even know where to start with a near death. <laughs> I just I'm going to let you tell the story and I'm going to listen very intently and ask questions as they come into my head. So before we get started, Allison, share a bit about yourself that I may not have, you know, really fleshed out in the introduction and, and your background if you would. Great. Yeah, I'll start at the beginning, right? I was born in the city of Chicago, products of the Chicago Public School. Uh, got a master's and bachelor's in electrical engineering, ended up moving to California uh, to work in the aerospace industry uh, where they were putting me through graduate school. So it was a great start to career, come live at the beach and get a free master's and spent 30 years in the tech industry going from engineering to marketing sales, uh, big companies, seven startups with six of them either going public or getting bought. And in 2016, I decided that I wanted to go out on my own and go back to school to be an executive coach, to be the resource that I wished I had on my journey 
Uh, so that's a little bit about my professional journey. Personally, I was a swimmer from the young age of seven, competitive swimmer through grammar school and college. I was fortunate enough to be a, a nationally ranked age group swimmer and a Division One scholarship swimmer and moved out to California and kept that going with triathlons until my body said no more. Um, and, you know, so it's been a great life. I'm an adventure traveler, been all over the world with just me in my backpack. I, I'm a scuba diver, which my favorite thing is to dive with sharks. You know, one, one time we just do bloody ropes in the water, woke up and put a, throw a couple buckets of fish in the water and jump in. So I've lived a, re- I've lived a really great life. I've been blessed both professionally and personally uh, in all aspects of my life. One of the things that you and I were talking about were that kids, in, <laughs> you would get harassed, I think, you know, from your fifth grade in school. Your fifth grade teacher, math teacher, was calling your mom <laughs> to say the boys didn't like that you raised your hand for math class, you know, and then you went on to earn the master's in engineering. That is a very rare thing for at that time anyway, and it still is, to be honest. That's a very rare occupation for women. Well, you know, from a young age, math was like a game for me. And I had, you know, my brain processes information fast. You know, I'm insecure about a lot of aspects of my life, but my brain, I know my brain works fast. When I understand something, it processes it very quickly. And in fifth grade, which, you know, I'll date myself in the late 70s, um, the teacher called my mom, a male, a male teacher called my mom and said that the boys don't like that your daughter raises her hand first in math class. And my mom said to him, well, then put her in the advanced class. He goes, this is the advanced class. She goes, I don't know what to tell you then. And my mom never told me that story until I was 50 years old um, because she never wanted to squash uh, my desire to learn and my, my desire to, to be excited about learning. So I'm always grateful that my mom never uh, always encouraged and never discouraged that, that part that, of me. That, and, yeah. Right. I had, look, I am, when I got my, my little degree, a computer science degree, I was doing beautifully until I got to algebra. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> and I remember standing up in the classroom and saying, no, I cannot learn this. I don't want to learn this. This is a bunch of made-up crap. Somebody who couldn't <laughs> get laid made up. And they passed me mostly because they wanted me to shut up and go away. But I didn't pass with a high grade. <laughs> Everything else was good. But like you, I had one of those moms that I'm a voracious reader. I read everything. I'll read the back of a cereal box, and I don't eat cereal. But I, was start, I started teaching myself basically to read when I was about three years old because there were books everywhere. And when I got to kindergarten, the teacher you know, called my mom in. She said, Denise is lying. She says that she could read. And my mom said, well, she can. And my mom was five foot nothing much and a half, but she could jump like a flea. And this woman said, well, how, how can she read? How does she know how to read? My mom stood up to her full five foot nothing much and a half and looked at this very large German teacher, a woman, and said, because we didn't tell her she couldn't. And that was the end of that. <laughs> You know, I, you know, you gotta, you gotta give it to teachers. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for my great teachers. But occasionally, there's one that has a misstep, and we're fortunate yeah. that our parents stepped in and did that. You know, I'm lucky. In when I was a junior in high school, I thought, oh, you're good in math, I'd be an accountant. And my physics and calculus teachers are the ones that directed me towards engineering. 
So I was very lucky that I had some great mentors that, that knew how to channel what I was good at to, so I could move forward. So, you know, teachers have been a great, great thing. There's always that occasion. We all have, you know, it's good to have stories in life. We all have the story of that one or two, right, <laughs> that, uh, that, that left a, an indelible mark and in, in maybe not the right, the right way. Well, actually, it, she's the only teacher I remember because I hated school. I really did. <laughs> I was so bored. But yeah, I remember yeah. her. I remember she was very tall. She had a German accent. And she was actually a really nice woman. But when she called me a liar, I didn't like that. My mom didn't either. Yeah, the the, the math teacher was one of my favorites because I remember him talking about mental gymnastics and and. You know, calculators were just coming out and he's like never use a calculator and so I always even when I was in sales calculating commissions and things everything in my head or on paper so you know he taught me a lot to just always use your brain don't rely on other things so I was shocked when I heard that from my mom so fortunately I, I had a really great I had a great experience with him and didn't know that he was trying to discourage that piece of me interesting but it it went your way so well, it did because I had that. a champion. I'm a big believer right. we have, to have champion, champions in our life, right? And fortunately, my parents have always been great champions for my sister and I. And you're blessed. Many parents want to do that, and they do it. Some just don't or can't. So you're truly blessed with that. Let's talk, Allison, about your near-death experience. I mean, we I led with that. It's a fascinating story. So let's go there and then kind of work our way to the other questions that we've got. Yeah, great. So even though I've been a, an athlete and adventurer, I've done it all with asthma. And it's always been controlled as long as I keep working out. And um, when I was about 40, they noticed a, a heart murmur and determined that one of my valves, I was born with a valve in my heart. Your aortic valve has three leaves on it. And when the blood pumps out, the three leaves seal so it doesn't regurgitate. I was born in one of my aortic valves with only two leaves. And so the valve would, uh, has to work extra harder to try to squeeze shut. And they noticed the regurgitation at 40. And it was under observation. And every year I'd get it checked. And every year they'd say, uh, you know, there's mild, moderate, and severe. You're barely mild. See you next year. And it probably won't be an issue till you know, your late 70s or 80s. Just stay healthy, which I always did. And then 2020 hit, you know, in August, I had my checkup, so got the same, you know, green light, won't be, won't be decades. January 2020, I, I had a hysterectomy, and I couldn't work out for about 10 weeks on my bicycle. I get on my bicycle on an easy incline, and I can't breathe. And I thought, did I really get that out of shape in 10 weeks? Is my asthma really that bad? So they thought asthma, asthma, and then I started getting chest pain. And they took me in to do a stress test. And before they did it, they did another test and said, uh-oh, um, we think something's going on with your valve. We have to get you into the hospital to do an angiogram, and you might have to have open heart surgery. And this was at the beginning of COVID. So I oh, couldn't get no. in the hospital for six weeks. And I finally get in there, and I wake up from the angiogram where they put you to sleep, and they go through your joints, groin, and check things out. And I wake up, and there's a strange man looking over me saying that you have to have open-heart surgery, and I'm going to be your surgeon. Um, and fortunately, that strange man became a friend, uh, spent a lot of time with him, and felt really safe with him doing the surgery. We came up with a plan. And the day of the surgery, um, they couldn't get me off bypass. And, and I, we don't know what happened. We don't know two things, like why did my – Valve go from being great in August to failing in March or April, and then why they couldn't get me off bypass. 
Uh, it could be that my asthma weakened my heart and my heart weakened my, uh, my lungs. And after nine hours on the table, they couldn't get me off bypass. So they put me on this device called ECMO, E-C-M-O. And it basically puts you in suspended animation. And I was there for about six days. And you had about a 20 to 40% chance of making it from there. Um, came out and waking up, I'm alone in the hospital. Again, it's COVID. So my partner couldn't be there. You know, he couldn't be there. My family couldn't be there. My friends couldn't be there. So you wake up alone, you're disoriented, you're scared. Um, and so it's quite crazy. I was hallucinating for days, couldn't remember how to use my phone to call people. And, um, and then by the time I'm calm, I'm good. They're getting me out of the ICU. They, they said, okay, we have to get you up walking. And which is common with patients that have been in the hospital for a while. Uh, you're, you get a lot of quick atrophy and I lost the ability to walk. And at the same time, my right foot had dropped, which means I couldn't lift it. So it's just hanging off my foot. So now I have to learn to walk again and not trip over my foot. And once I was able to walk myself with the walker to the bathroom, I was allowed to go home. And I get home. And the second day with the walker, I told my boyfriend, um, the wa- a walker isn't part of my life. Get rid of it. And he was amazing because, you know, the days I didn't want to, you know, times I didn't want to walk, you know, I just held on to him as tight as I could. If we walked one house, two house, and then eventually I was just able to hold his arm and eventually hold his hand and eventually walk on my own. And, you know, I still veer a little bit. I veer, veer the right and he just grabbed me and I built my life back. And then I ended up back in the hospital two more times. Uh, the third one was for a long stretch. I had uh, trouble breathing for a week. And I thought I had COVID and it kept being told to me, well, we haven't seen another human being. So how could we have COVID? So it takes me to the ER after five days and turned out I had three liters of fluid, uh, two in a lobe of my lung that had collapsed and a liter around my heart that wasn't accessible through a needle. So they had to slice me open and put and drain everything and put drains in me for nine more days in the hospital, laying in bed with drains in me. Um, and trying to get, um, if you think about it, like when you sprain your ankle, how fluid builds up around it to protect it. In fact, well, my right. body went through so much trauma that it was building up fluid as protection. So not only did they have to drain the fluid, they had to get me on medication to stop the rebuilding of the fluid. And that medication really, I mean, when I got home, I couldn't get out of bed for a few days because the medication was debilitating. And then you have to rebuild again. I hadn't completely lost the ability to walk, but I had to, you know, I'd lost a lot of it and you have to restart again. So it was a little crazy. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to have an amazing partner who was there on my side to push me and encourage me and, you know, and help me rebuild. Um, we did have like an occupational therapist come in one day, but his mask kept falling down and I was so scared. I'm like, if I got COVID at that point, I would have died. You know, we didn't have vaccines yet. And and I'm like, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life. I know my body better than anybody. And between me and your support, we'll figure it out. So we rehabbed my foot. I no longer have a dropped foot. I got. My, I was you know, going to ask you about that. Yeah, we just, you know, um, did some basic exercises. And then my GP gave me some exercises and just stayed with it. And um, what happened was most likely the device that kept me alive was on my right groin. And it probably compressed a lot of the nerves. So I still get some phantom weird things with that leg sometimes. Sometimes it feels like it's on its own agenda, but I have full functionality back. And two months after my last hospital stay, we were down in San Diego and did a 20-mile bike ride of rolling hills. And then the next month, I was able to do a six-mile hike at 6,000 feet altitude. 
And the big thing I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to do again with my balance issues was I'm a stand-up paddle boarder out in the ocean and I'm on a skinnier board, a faster board. And two months after the bike ride, I was able to get on my board in the ocean. And so I, you know, I tell people I made the choice to take my life back. So I did. And, and that's, that's the story of what happened. I know, I, you know, story. I've and had some challenges so since then, but it's, yeah. it's been good. Yeah. So much of what you're talking about when you woke up in the hospital with all these, my brother was a double lung transplant patient. He passed away a year or so ago. And so much of what you were describing, I was having flashbacks with you. It's like, oh gosh, you know, it just, these things happen. You either going to decide, it, in his case, he decided he wasn't going to let them push him around, them being anybody other than him. And it sounds kind of like that was your attitude. Well, you know, I had, um, not to take a detour from things, but I'd only met uh, the man I'm with four months before this happened. And he agreed oh, to wow. take care of me through all of this. And I knew you know, from the beginning that this was the guy. <laughs> this is who I've been waiting to be with. And I was not going to let what happened to me stop us from creating the life that I saw possible with us. And we have, and we're still together and, you know, looking to buy a house together later this year. And so it's... Um, you know, but it was, it's a beautiful story. And it was just, that was another extra layer of incentive, right? Was, you know, I, I want the vision that we, when we, all the things we had in common, all the things we talked about to come to fruition. So I had that extra incentive uh, pushing me forward. It's a big incentive. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a really big incentive. So when you talk about living a life free from expectations, limitations, and blind spots, you are dead serious about that. You're not kidding. Well, you know, I did, I've done a lot of interviews because my, my, my recovery has been pretty amazing. My, my doctors tell me that a lot of people get depressed and they really don't go back to, the, to where they were before. It really has a, it takes a big emotional toll and physical toll on them. And so I try to use my story to inspire. And the question I always got asked, did you have any epiphanies at the end of this? Like, you know, you have these life-changing moments. And my epiphany was that, you know, I was, living life right. The only thing I realized is that, you know, the only regret I would have had in life is I'm pretty hard on myself. And I wish I had been kinder to myself in life. Uh, I'm still pretty hard on myself. I'm still, that's a perpetual journey, but that I was living life right. And I started looking at uh, working with my clients and, and what I felt like, and what also felt like in my career at times that I'm, I put myself in a box or other people put us in this box and there's labels and expectations there's limitations or blind spots, doubts, and that really I was lucky that I had unboxed my life, that I was working in a corporate career because that's what my family expected me to do, and, uh, and it paid really well, and it looked good, and all these things, and really I was miserable for a long time in my career, and when I decided to leave my career for, it was right after my dad had passed, which may have given me some freedom to make that change. And I wasn't really showing up very well for my company because I missed so much time while he was dying and then helping out the family afterwards. And so it was just like best to just leave the role. And instead of going back to the role, I took a month and went to Guatemala and Belize for a month and came back and, and uh, started a consulting business and got to be an analyst at a small venture capital firm while I went back to school to be an executive coach. Uh, with if you're a fan of Simon Sinek, you know, my why is um, to be the resource I wish I had throughout my career. 
how much easier would the path have been, especially as a woman in tech, if I had someone to help me figure out when I was getting in my own way, when the system was getting in my own way, was getting in my way and help me have that navigate and have that resource along the way. And it's been really great working with people and helping them unbox their lives. And it's not about peeking over the box. It's about blowing up the box and living unbound and seeing what's possible professionally or personally when you have the courage to remove those barriers and limitations, self-imposed or not, in your life and your career. And I really like what you're saying about, you know, you're living an unboxed life. I mean, that's clearly obvious, but having, we we don't see the complications that we put in front of ourselves. We just don't. And that's why I believe most people, even if you're not a business person, even if you're working, I don't know, for the Dollar Tree, you need mentors, whether they're, you know, family, whether they're friends, but you need mentors and coaches who can say, okay, why are you doing this? And what's it, what are you getting from it? Is this really working for you? One of my favorite accidental mentors many, many years ago, and it was just a, a honestly, Allison, it was a conversation in a grocery store and we got to talking about, I don't even know what, it's the deep south. I live in Cajun country. We talk about everything. And she asked me, what is it that you're tolerating? I have never forgotten that. Never forgotten that. And I've never seen that woman before or since. But that question has stuck in my mind. And I'm always asking myself, what are you tolerating? And once I identify it, well, why? Stop it. She had no that, idea. That is a great, powerful question. As coaches, we love powerful questions. And, you know, another one, working with a lot of my clients lately, it's been a theme, and I'm actually going to be doing some writing on this, is a lot, like, what haven't you given yourself permission to do yet? There it is. And yeah. because I'm working a lot with a lot of people that want to get promoted or pivot their careers or just make more impact. And that permission came for me because I had to, you know, stop my business and rebuild it. And, you know, I was having some struggles and I'm like, what haven't I given myself permission to do yet? Have I given myself permission to go all in in my business and to show up fully? And I realized I had a story that if I did that, then I'd be as stressed out as unhappy as I was in my corporate job. And then I had to realize that's a story I'm making up because that's the muscle, that's the known muscle memory, right? That success equals pain. And so I had to give myself permission to believe that I can build a successful career without all the pain of the past and permission to show up big and know that not everybody in my life has to understand or agree with what I'm doing. And talking to so many of my clients, I'm just, when I throw that question out, it sits with them for a while and they come back and they're like, they they were able to start listing all the things they haven't given those permission to do yet. And it really is permission to excel permission to believe in themselves, permission not to need approval to show up and not permission to, to not worry about others' opinions. And so um, it's really a great, another question, like what are you tolerating? And then what do you need to give yourself permission to do or to be? And that's, um, I love that question. And I love the, uh, the space it's, it's giving my clients to, to think and to start freeing themselves. And it's amazing that we don't ask ourselves that. I would have not thought to ask myself, 
what am I tolerating? I knew what irritated me, marriage mostly. I knew what I was not <laughs> going to tolerate. I had surgery a couple of years ago, and the, the anesthesiologist came in. He said, what are you allergic to? And I said, sulfur drugs, penicillin, and marriage. And he just looked at me and out. He's like, okay. <laughs> I was serious. I mean, I was already kind of drugged anyway, and it's out of my mouth. So apparently I really mean it. But I, it never occurred to me for some silly reason to ask myself, what was I tolerating? What was really standing in my way? What was just driving me buggy, but I just kept putting up with it? These, it's an important question, and I'm glad you know, that you're working with you're your clients on it. Yeah, sorry, um, what you're tolerating is also put, what puts you in the box and keeps you in the box. Yes. Yep. It is, yeah. And, and the other really thing does. is, that, yeah, the other thing is, what labels have other people put on you that you've allowed to stick? You know, Let's I know talk about those sister. because they, well, for example, really yeah. in your infancy practically. Well, I can give it like in my professional career. I was working for a company, a big tech company, one of the biggest in the world, and I was, uh, the first female field engineer at that company. And this was in early, you know, 1990. And I was supposed to be popping out babies and married, not doing what I was doing. And so it was a rough place. Not everybody, but it was pretty rough uh, place. And it's so funny because I didn't realize it at the time, but I remember talking to HR and they're like, well, you know, we're doing this, this move and, 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 and this culture thing. And we really, you just don't fit in the box. And at the time that insulted oh. me, now, now I wear it as a badge of honor. And it was really interesting. And I was miserable. My hair was falling out. My health was bad from the stress of the environment. But I had golden handcuffs that were seven figures. And I finally, you know, I said, I'm young and I'll figure it out. And I walked away from that seven-figure um, uh, un- unvested stocks. I had done a presentation in front of this small company because it was one of those ironic things one of the sales guys uh, didn't show up for the meeting. And so spur of the moment as the engineer, I had to go present. And the CEO of this company said, I look for four qualities in good salespeople and you had all four, would you consider coming to work for us? And I ended up being the first salesperson. I went from engineering sales at the small startup. They were all based in Boston. I was in California. Ironically, they felt that because I was a competitive swimmer, I knew how to be self-motivated and challenge myself. So they allowed me to be remote and I crushed it for them. And everything that I was criticized at the previous company was praised at this company. So, you know, those labels that they tried to put on me didn't stick. I didn't let them stick. I knew that when I'm with the right people, um, those labels weren't really true. But it's often hard because we give so much power to these voices because they have titles or they have experience or they have authority. And we think because they have that, what they say is true. And we have to remember that, you know, uh, they're just humans and you're, and you're just a human. And just because they have a different title with a couple letters in front of it doesn't mean their opinion and judgment of you is true. And that leads me back to another question that when you, when you did walk away and then eventually you started your own coaching business, but what happened when, when you were hospitalized and you had to rebuild your body, rebuild practically everything, did your business just die off or did, you know, clients say, well, we'll wait for you? What happened there? Well, I actually knew that, you know, this could be 
you know, the end, right? I, I, you know, I had mortality standing me, staring me in the face. I actually got my will and trust and everything set up just before um, all this happened. And I finished all my clients and I shut down my business because if I didn't make it, I didn't want anybody in my family having to untangle owing money to anybody uh, or anything. And I had some other complications, so I couldn't start working again for a while. Uh, I think I was able to do one client later that year, but it really wasn't until the next year that I started again. And then I had a six-month bout where they thought I had autoimmune disease. Uh, They thought I had lupus or one in the gums, and I had no energy for a while. So it really took a while uh, to, to really get fully back into it. But I was I was lucky that I um, was able to, to do that uh, and rebuild the business. I'm lucky that I had done well over my career, that I had the financial means uh, to be able to be okay figuring that out and do it uh, when my body was able to do it. So, Angie, Allison, I'm sorry. I'm... <laughs> Allison, um, I don't even know where that came from. What was in your, it's a mindset is what I'm hearing from you, that you've got this amazing mindset. Was there anything in particular that, you know, you would kind of stumble across your own feet, not literally, but figuratively, and your mindset would just fail you a little bit? Or was it just kind of momentary and momentary? Momentary? I can't even talk today. And you would say, no, I'm not going to do this. This is not who I am. Well, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll, I'm going to do the converse of that first, is that, uh, you know, I'll always bet on me. As a competitive swimmer, um, when I would do like a 100-yard race, when we got to the 75-yard uh, the last turn, I knew that if I was equal with anybody there that I would win because I knew I wanted it more than they did. I, and I knew that I, I, can, I had more inside of me than they did. And so I will always bet on me. Now, there were times when I let other people's voices make me doubt myself and think I wasn't good enough, and that was my challenge, and that's why I want to be the coach for that person so they have another voice in their head that's saying, okay, there might be some things to work on, but let's not, let's not characterize you as all bad because you might have some skills you need to develop. And so I will always bet on me. When I, when I, when I feel like I'm in a zone of my, my greatness, right, and in an area that I have put the time, work, or have the skills for, I will always bet on me. And, and I know that I was meant to be a coach. I know that when I'm connected with the right client, when we have the right connection, I can be a powerful ally and resource for them. And so I just know that this is what I'm meant to do. And despite the challenges of trying to build a business, you know, there's so many people calling themselves coach that aren't properly trained or don't have the experience. Um, and that, you know, to, to, to get through the flood of that so people can see what's your unique voice and how you can uniquely help them. But I just know this is what I'm meant to do. And, and it's been hard. There was, there was a point um, sometime last year where I, the business was struggling. And I remember saying out loud, I did not fight to take my life back to be this miserable. And it's like, oh. well, it's like what, what do I need to do to shift this? Because at this point, I, um, I was miserable. I was struggling. I couldn't get that right equation out. My marketing wasn't landing. I felt like I was working too hard. I wasn't in flow. And it's like, seriously, you know, should I just retire? <laughs> should I just be done? And uh, I really had to, um, you know, I call it sometimes you have to hit the rock bottom so you have something to bounce back up from. And so I had my little bounce last year and regrouped. And, and now things are, you know, things are great. But um, you, we have moments, <laughs> you know. You're not human if you don't have those moments of self-doubt or frustration. Um, it's just what you do with those moments. And 
I believe everybody needs to have champion challengers and cheerleaders in their life, right? You know, the, the champions who see the things in you that you don't see. And I'm so lucky to be surrounded by, by friends and family and, and professional counterparts that remind me of who I am in this world and, champ, and challengers who will help you see your blind spots and be your truth tellers and tell you when you might be getting in your own way or maybe there's another perspective you need to look at. And cheerleaders, you know, you, we need to celebrate all the milestones along the way. And I literally have uh, cheerleaders on speed dial if I want to just celebrate little micro victories. Uh, so I have that. So everybody needs to be a cheerleader, champion, uh, and uh, um, and a, a challenger for people in their lives, and everybody should have them. And I'm I'm lucky to have all of those, and to be all, of, are, to be all of those. You are. And I just remembered or realized why I called you um, Angie because I was looking at my bookcase, and one of my guests recently, just last week, wrote a book called Bet on You. And I knew you and I were going to be talking about bet on me. And I looked at her and I just, my brain just went zip and off it went. <laughs> but you talk a lot about values. They're at the core of everything. I wish more people understood that. But you say that people need to be intentional about defining their values and honest about how they are currently living them. And we've been talking about that a, a bit you also go on to say that when you live life in alignment with your values, life works. And as you just mentioned, it flows. But even when it doesn't, it's not any even more complicated than that. And I love what you say about flows because as a creative, if my creativity just kind of dries up, I have to jumpstart it. I can't just go, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go outside and kick a tire. I have to do something that brings my creativity roaring back. And I've got a lot of little tips and tricks for that. But you have to be aware that, you know, your energy's down, you're flagging, you're not thinking in a way that's going to help you or anybody else. And what are some of the, the tips that you can give our audience about, hey, get back and flow? Well, it's funny. I was talking with a, a potential client yesterday and we were talking about being in flow, not in fight. And I think my word for 2022 was flow. And first off, let's go back to values because values will lead into flow if that's okay. Um, yeah. For example, you know, and, and intention is really important. And, you know, I, I, I use an example, like by the time you make your morning coffee, you've made done, but dozens of choices that a lot of them aren't intentional. They're habit or expectations, routine, right? Um, values are the same thing. Everyone thinks they know their values. But the work we do, and, and I was taught at the, the Coactive Training Institute, and so much of that foundation is values. And one of my amazing instructors, Rick Tamlin, was the one that simplified the value conversation that said, when you're in line with your values, life flows. When you're, you don't, it doesn't. It's not more complicated than that. So I want to give him credit for that. And what we do is with our clients, we do this exercise, because you and I both might have the value of integrity. But what that means to you and what that means to me is different. So the right. first session with my clients, we build this value map of not only what are the, the, the maybe the nine core values, but what are all the value strings, the details underneath, so you can have an understanding of it. And I'll give you two examples of where values that came into play. I had a client who hired me to, uh, black clients come to me because they want to get promoted and they want to figure out what they need to be promoted and in the midst of this, of our time together, he lost his job. His job was affected by COVID. Uh, the type of product they had was going to not be successful because COVID. And he had lost his job. So we pivoted our work to 
working on getting him a job. He had done the work on a detailed value map, and we had two realizations. One was how unaligned that last job was to his values, so it was a blessing that he was let go. And second, we created an interview question for every one of his values. He found a dream job. He's been there two years now. He's been promoted twice. He has never been happier because he works for a company and for a team, a management team, that in alignment with his values. So that was one example. And then when I was uh, having my little pity party last year, coach, my coach told me, we looked at my values and I realized I was ignoring a couple of my key values because I was focused on three of them so intently. And by putting focus back on those two values, I got my life back in emotional balance and then all the things started flowing again uh, with my, my career. So it's just knowing your values and then being an honest, once we do that value map, we look at a scale of one to 10 of where you're living in them. And a common misperception, I think, or two common misperceptions is to have one value be true, you have to sacrifice another. And in coaching, we really try to find the and in situations. How can this and this be true and not the ors, this or this? And the other thing is that there's this misperception that our professional values and our personal values are not always going to be in alignment. And I think that that's a, a, a story we've been told and that to find true alignment with both your professional and your personal values is the true utopia. And we should be striving for that. You might have to take some steps to get there, but that it's not, it's not a, a myth that you can have both of those in alignment and be successful and provide for your family and all of that. See, I don't understand how people can, it's kind of like that old tried and trite Thing, you know, life, work, balance. There's no such thing. You are what you are, in my view. You know, your values are going to be the same no matter if you're, you know, life or you're at work. It's who you are. It's how you operate. Why do people want to separate those out? I don't understand it. Well, there's this myth like, you know, to be successful at work, I have to be maniacal and intense and all of that. But at home, it's about, you know, loving and, and all of that. And it's like, well, why do you have to be? I got to tell you, my life got so much easier when I stopped trying to be who I thought I was supposed to be at work and just was Allison. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and and guess what? I'm not a fit every place. Every place is not a culture fit. Every place is not going to like my style, Um, which is pretty easygoing. It's just that, you know, um, I'm, I'm direct. I'm from Chicago. We say what we mean. We mean what we say. I'm kind, but I'm direct. If you look at most of my testimonials, I think they all say the word direct, but they also say loving and kind and that, she creates a safe space, but she'll tell you what you need to hear. And, you know, not everybody, not everybody's okay with that. But I stopped. It was so much work trying to be this other person at, at work than I was outside of work. It was emotionally exhausting. And once I realized that I can be the same person and find that just alignment with those right, the right culture and the right team and the right people and the right environment, that I could be Allison 24 hours a day and I didn't have to struggle with this duality. Uh, that I thought I was supposed to have. Every time I hear people say, well, you know, I have to be this at work and I have to be this at home, what you're doing is turning yourself into a schizoid. Stop it. It just doesn't work. You're going to need medication at some point, I think. I don't know. But, you know, I'm going to be me no matter where I am. And, you know, it's kind of inferred. If you like me, good. If you don't, I'm not going to worry about it. You know, as what a young you think woman in tech, not my business. Yeah, as a young woman in tech, though, most of my role models were masculine, right? And right. these companies, there weren't female role models. And so there was 
sometimes a different culture in that, right? And it was the grind. And there was also uh, this, this whole thing about the grind. And, and, and I'm I, like in schoolwork, I'd be the one that would finish a test in like, you know, 50, if I get it, I'd finish the test and be done. And I had an efficiency in the way I did my work. And I, so, but I was like, if I was felt guilty, if I wasn't working 60 hours a week. So I gave everybody the impression I was working 60 hours a week, which I couldn't have been because I was also training for triathlons and having a hell of a social life. But, you know, I felt like I had to give this impression that I'm working all the time because that's what was expected. And in fact, instead of the fact that maybe I'm just a little more efficient than you. There you <laughs> so go. Just, um, and it was just this expectation that you're supposed to be stressed and behind and grind. And, and I don't work that way. I, I, I get the work done when I, when I'm, when I put my head down and I, and I'm focused, I can get more done in 15 minutes than some person can in, in hours at times. And I, I felt like I had to hide that and just be like, okay, I just have to be this struggling person and I have to be all about the money. And that's when I left my corporate career. One of the things was in my last two roles, you know, I was in sales type roles and there was an expectation that one of your values was making money, but I had already done well and, really had set up for my retirement and put money away. And I owned my house, which was almost paid off and all of these things. So um, I didn't need to make as much money. And I felt like, well, they want me to be focused on money. And I remember having a conversation with one of my bosses saying, you probably make a hundred thousand dollars more a year than me, but I'm guessing your mortgage is probably two to three times mine. I'm guessing you're supporting three other people in your family that don't work, your spouse and, and, and kids. And so I probably have more take-home pay than you at the end of the day. I also don't spend my money on, I'm more about, and, and all my friends, we're more about experiences. I say we're doers versus havers. So I don't spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on purses and shoes and fancy clothes um, because those aren't, or jewelry, those aren't interesting to me. There's nothing wrong with that if you enjoy that. I just don't. So I told him, you might make more money than me, but I guess I'm putting away more than you because of how I live my life and what my values are. I don't, I didn't need, when I started making big money, I didn't go to the bigger house and the bigger neighbor and the better neighborhood. Um, I stayed in my simple townhouse, which is a block from the beach with I've, you know, a mortgage that is less than you can rent this, you know, I have a three bedroom townhouse that you couldn't even rent a studio apartment in my neighborhood for what my mortgage is because I didn't have that desire because my values weren't about things. My values are about experiences. So it's just about understanding your values and not having to try to be like everybody else. I wrote, um, I write a newsletter and I wrote one in LinkedIn that said, you don't have to want your boss's job and that it's okay to want to stay as like an individual contributor at the level you're at. You don't have to have that desire. I have to, I have to show them I want the next job and the next role. It's like, who, who said that? Who said that? You can have a very successful career. I know I got turned up, turned out for promotions partially because I was a woman and partially because I had a vacation habit. I would take, I would take, I would abuse every vacation policy at the companies I was at. So it looked like I wasn't as serious about my job to some of the companies and that's okay. They could, they could do that. And I realized that the way I travel, the way I backpack and hike and do these things are not things that I wanted to wait till I was 60 to do because my body couldn't do them then. So I was going to enjoy them now. And one year I, I wanted to get back to New Zealand to hike rake walks in New Zealand. So I had closed the biggest deal in the history of the company and quit my job and went backpacking and did the Great Walks of New Zealand and then took about nine months off, did triathlons all summer, and then at the end of the year said, okay, time to go back to work. Uh, and they can look at me and people are like, oh, you must have gotten fired that nine months off. And I'm like, 
no, that's your story. My story was I wanted to go hike the Great Walks of New Zealand while my body could still do it. And um, I ended up getting hired by some people that knew me that had worked with me before that had started a company. So that worked out great. But, you know, some people thought that I wasn't promotion material because I chose to prioritize um, my vacation habits. Good for for you. I love that. And what that tells me about them is that they were so busy watching you from their lens or their bias that they weren't paying attention to what you were actually doing, what you had brought to the company, which is shameful. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I remember when one of my startups got bought by a bigger company and uh, they wanted me to move over into the strategic role calling, uh, working with some of the the biggest companies in, in Southern California. And they were bragging about, you know, we've all these resources to support you and all this stuff. Well, my friends will tell you I'm a memory mutant. I remember I, I, I have a crazy memory. It comes from my mom, too. She would be, don't you remember when you were five years old, we did this and this. So she trained my sister and I to have these, you know, to, that your brain is a muscle. And if you exercise it, it becomes powerful. So we're all memory mutants in, in my family. And so like two years later, when my college roommate invited me to go to uh, Peru to go hike Machu Picchu, I'm like, yes. And and I go to tell my bosses, by the way, I'm not bringing a laptop and I'm not bringing a phone because we're going to be doing multiple tracks and I'm not going to have electricity most of the time. And, uh, and I got to leave stuff that is not uh, going with me in, another, in like a hotel or a place. It's not, and I'm not going to leave expensive, expensive electronics there. And they were like, no one's ever done that before. What if something goes wrong? I said, well, I'm also OCD, so I'm going to have every... And my master's is in fault tolerance and parallel processing. So I look at what could go wrong all the time. I will outline everything for every account, every possible thing that could go wrong, all the different things. You will have so much documentation that you'll have basically a guidebook if anything happens. But they were like, and of course, nothing bad happened. And I didn't check in the entire time and the world was fine. But they're like, no one's ever done that before, gone away for two weeks and not checked in. (laughs) It was like this foreign concept to them. But that's just who I am. I, I, you know, if I'm on vacation, I want to be present. I want to be on vacation. How panicked were they the whole time? I would imagine. They, they were, because I gave them such detailed documentation. Okay. But I also, I also threw back at them. I said, when I interviewed, you told me how many resources you have. So let's put those resources to work. I'll make sure they're all up to speed. Uh, and all my customers knew what was going on as well. So everybody was in. And, and I've done this my whole career. And nothing bad has ever happened on my vacations because of all the, the, the diligence I put in the pre-work and the documentation just in case. And see, I'm entertaining myself by, you know, picturing them having regular prayer circles while you were gone. <laughs> I can't help. That's just the way my brain works. You mentioned something earlier about focus, and that's a big issue for a lot, a lot of people. I have times, days, moments when I can't focus on a darn thing, and I have to sit myself down and say, okay, you know, there's I've got little habits that I create to get back to focus. But let's talk about that because I think it's very important, whether it's momentary, whether it's for a week, whether it's for a month, focus is where you really do need to, to show up and say, okay, this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this done. I will time myself. I'll say, okay, Denise, you've got one hour to get this particular thing done. And anymore, I don't even do an hour to be honest, because you can just sit so long in front of a computer monitor or on your butt and your brain just says, yeah, I'm done. I got to get out of here. So for me, it's 30 to 45 minutes max. And then I have to get up and move around. 
Well, it's interesting. So I'm like, you know, people with crazy brains, right? Like you and I, you know, we focus can be a challenge at times. Yeah. For me, for me, if I really can't focus, I'm like, okay, you're not getting anything done. I'll take the dog for a walk or I'll go for a walk or I'll, you know, I'll put on, you know, watch, uh, you know, an, a short a Netflix episode of some show or something and just be like, you're not here right now. So you can keep trying to be here or you can just acknowledge that you can't be here. Uh, or other times I might do some breath work to slow things down, slow my brain down and, and do that. The other thing that I got introduced to, and it's similar to what you're talking, it's called the Pomodoro Technique. And so I'm aware. It, yeah, Share that with somebody the concept in pomodoros is the tomato. I don't know why it's called pomodoro. Somebody can look that up if they're really curious. But for it, and and it's about spending 25 minutes working and then five minute break. And the break has nothing to do with work. It's not like you go do housework, right? You take a break. So and you can do 45, 10, whatever that works for you. But they they default is 25, five. And I actually have a pomodoro timer on my phone, and so that I do that 25 minutes. What's really interesting about it is when that timer is going, I almost get competitive with myself of how much can I get done in, in that time frame to do it. And you kind of get more motivated. I want to get this done before the 25 is up, you know, so it, it helps. And then you take those breaks. Um, I also use a productivity planner. And, when, and what that does is it has you uh, map out what you, your goals are for the week. And then each day, what's that one thing? Because we always have that one thing we don't want to do, but that we're supposed to do. And you got to do, do it first, first thing. I do it first thing, get it out of the way. And it also uses pomodoros. Is how many pomodoros do you think this will take? So you set yourself uh, up and say, yeah. And so you do that. And that also gets that little bit of juices going, okay, I got to get this done in two. And, and then you have the next two things to get done. So it helps you prioritize. I'm not consistent with it, but the days I use it are really productive. Now you don't, you don't always know what's going to happen, right? A phone call could come in and throw your whole day sideways because someone needs a proposal for something or, um, you know, something else happens. But when, when I use it consistently, I will say it helps me get my focus and my priorities in the right place. But the biggest thing is to not beat yourself up because your brain has something else on it. You're having a human experience because of some stimulation internally or externally is taking your focus away and give yourself some grace that that's going on, figure out what's causing it, figure out if you can eliminate it, figure out if you need to take a break, or if you really have a deadline, then pull up your, your, your bigger girl or big boy panties and just put your head down and do it. I use that term all the time, pull up your panties and get to work. You know what I do that's going to sound silly, and I mention it a lot, because it works for me. But, you know, everybody has those open refrigerator door moments. You somehow landed in front of your refrigerator no clue. You don't remember the trip. You don't know what you wanted. You don't know why those doors are open. And when my focus is just shot, again, 30 to 45 minutes, I'm going to try the 25. I like that better. I go, I will deliberately take myself to the refrigerator and I open up those double doors and I stick as much of my body in there as I can. This <laughs> big fridge. And I just stop thinking. It really just shuts my fevered brain down. And then, you know, okay, I'm done. You know, when the doors start beeping, it's like, okay, you're done. Close those doors. So they're my little warning. And That's then great. I can, I know, smart refrigerator. So then I'll turn around and I've got cats and everybody knows that I've got cats. And Hamilton is an ass. He's a hashtag. Hashtag Hamilton is an ass. If there's a refrigerator door open, he's there going, ooh, what's in there? 
So I'll pick him up and dance around the kitchen with him. 20 pounds. It's not easy. You have to lift from the knees. But, you know, it's just we have a good time. And then my brain is clear. I don't feel like there's inflammation going on in my brain because that happens. And off I go. I go back to work. Or I go out into the yard and I, you know, look at my tomato plants. But I'm I'm no longer just going, oh, geez, oh, geez, oh, geez. You know, I've shut that panic down. Well, pets are great for that. You know, I have a dog, Kiwi, which was named after the quitting my job and going backpacking through New Zealand. Uh, and so Kiwi's a lot of fun. And he has this habit of, um, he likes, I live in, near the beach and there's lots of uh, palm trees here and there's palm fronds, you know, the branches of the palm trees or the husk. Mm-hmm. And he loves to bring, he, he's a 23 pound dog that brings home 10 foot palm fronds. I mean, it's crazy or okay. husks or everything. And he just, he brings laughter. And so taking him out for a walk is usually very entertaining because he's always trying to find something and just, he's just, my friend described it. He just is the kind of dog. Everybody smiles when they see. And so, or, you know, see if he's, if I can wind him enough to play fetch. And, you know, when you're playing fetch outside, he's always trying to get past you, not to bring it back to you, but to get past you and run home. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to outsmart him just takes me out of my head uh, for a while and just clears whatever clutter was in there. Uh, you know, some people meditate, like some people are really good at meditating to clear their brain. Um, I think I just need to fill it with something else. So filling it with playing with my dog and strategies to try to outwit him is a great way to get out of whatever else was in my brain. And then I can go back to, to work after that um, because I've cleared the clutter out. Exactly. And I was going to say clear the fog out because when when my brain starts shutting down after I've been sitting here too long, I'm a you know, web developer, I write and code, I do a lot of things in in front of these large monitors. And all of a sudden, I realize that I'm reading that same piece of code or that same document that I just wrote over and over again. It's like, get up, get out of here. My former husband was let go from his job. He was a difficult guy. That's all I'm going to say. But he was let go from his job, and he was in here for about three months doing nothing from what I could tell. And I was always working. We had separate offices. And I remember him looking at me and saying, you move around a lot. Because he didn't know. He was not here during the day. And I said, well, who do you think cleans the house and cooks the dinner? I mean, really? (laughs) I was stunned that he thought I was a jack-in-the-box, that he'd had no idea that I was up and down, up and down, up and down all day long. But a lot of it is what we've been talking about, very deliberate. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. I had a friend who uh, her husband, you know, isn't in corporate. And when they moved in together and he's like, sounds like you're on personal calls all day. And it's like, he didn't understand that a big part of being corporate is relationship building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're just having fun all day. It's like, no, I'm actually working. I'm building relationships. So when I need these people, they're going to they're gonna work hard for me. And it was just a strange concept. <laughs> well, I had the same thing here. Say. Again, yeah. flashbacks. <laughs> this is getting strange. Listen, before, before I let you go, what advice do you have for others who are, are just kind of starting out in your field or, or pursuing a similar passion? Well, you know, whatever passion it is, is that figure out, spend some time and be intentional about understanding your values and then see what's aligned or not aligned in your life because it's just, it's a beautiful thing. You really are in alignment with living, living with things that are important to you, taking care of your family, having experiences, being a mentor, um, you know, creating a legacy, all these things that are important to you that if you're, 
if you find a way to start doing that and find the joy in it, but also just be kind to your, it's a, so the one thing, my one epiphany of almost dying is like, we just got to be darn kinder to ourselves on this journey we call life, right? It's just, it, it's hard at times and we don't do as well as we expected sometimes. And uh, we might say the wrong thing or go down the wrong path and that's okay, right? You know, I, uh, getting stuck or being hard on yourself, those are places we're allowed to visit, but we don't get to live there. No. So just, and and just find a way to just give yourself and I will often say that if you know, we all have our internal voice that cats at us, and I like to say, stop it, shut up, sit down, go take a seat, and you just stop talking to me. But I've often said that if anybody, anybody spoke to me, let's say a Walmart parking lot, the way I speak to myself every now and then, I would need bail money. Somebody's <laughs> nose would be bloodied, right? So Definitely. don't allow those those ugly thoughts to get stuck in your head and then get repeated and repeated and repeated. Knock it off. You know, with those ugly voices, I would always say, is it true? And is it my voice or whose voice am I internalizing? Exactly. So find the source, figure out the source, and then go find champions. Everyone should have champions and challengers and cheerleaders in their life. You know, you don't do it alone. You can be working alone, but that doesn't mean you have to be alone doing it. Find community that supports and uplifts you because life is better when in community. I wrote those down. Listen, before we go, is there anything else that you want the audience to know about you? Where can they find you? How can they connect with you? Well, they can go two ways. They can find me on LinkedIn. I put a lot of content out on LinkedIn. Or, you know, I, I wrote an article, 10 Ways you're, you're, you, you Think You're Stuck But You're Not. So if they go to idaretobemore.com, they can get that. And it's the number two. So I-D-A-R-E-2-B-E.com. And they can find ways that they might be stuck and uh, help them get out of that box of stuck and move forward. I looked at that the other day. It's brilliant. So, Allison, thank you so much. And I sincerely appreciate your company with all of us here today. Spending time with you has been a pleasure. A couple times I was like, oh, <laughs> I had flashbacks, which is a <laughs> good thing because, you know, we can't just shove everything down, can we? So, no, um, it was a pleasure to be connected with you this, for this hour. I enjoyed spending time with you, and I hope we get to chat again. Oh, definitely. So thank you so much. And to the audience, as we come to the end of today's episode, I would like to request your valuable feedback. If you found our insights, Mine and hers, mostly hers, because she is my very fascinating guest, useful. And if you enjoyed the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Your feedback helps me grow and inspire more people on their success journeys. So be sure to hit that subscribe button, leave that review, and share your part in Success Radio with your friends and colleagues. And thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to catching you again. Allison, again, thank you so much. Thank you, and have a great day. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 